Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. That is a quote from the author C.S. Lewis, author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm Danielle. I'm Raleigh. And this is Unstuck, the special ed podcast. That's a soothing song. Thanks. It's very relaxing. Royalty free. How are you doing over there? You know, it's it's been a rough week of illness, but... It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's so everywhere. I may, I may not be uh, my usual crisp voiced self today. You'll, I'm sure you'll still have your A game. I hope. You'll still be. If, even if it's a B minus, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm gonna Look, do it. five more days. Yeah. And one true. thing that you should be excited about that I'm not is that you have a half day on Friday. I'm I do. imagining. And I, I do. do. And I do not. Oh, unfortunately. Full day. Full day. I think all your days are half days compared to mine. Fair enough. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, it depends on the day, but yeah. technically, I guess I usually stay later. Mm. Um, so today we uh, decided to talk about um, how the emotional disability sort of plays itself out in schools and... I guess for me, one of the reasons that I thought it might be a good idea is that it can be so, it's so much harder to prescribe an emotional disability to a student than something more simple like academic. With academics, there's testing. Mm-hmm. There's things that are pretty straightforward. And I think for students who are still making progress academically, but still have that that emotional component, whether they're keeping it all in at school and letting it out at home, um, I feel like it's so much harder to to understand and to also um, identify in a true fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, you know, I'm gonna come from a different angle because all of my students have some type of emotional behavioral goal um, or a social emotional goal. That's sort of a prerequisite for our IEPs. It would be challenging, I think, to be a student in a setting such as mine where it's pretty restrictive to not have that because it's sort of saying like, well, why would you be here if everything emotionally, mentally was was where we wanted it to be? Um, And we obviously do have psychological testing in-house that we can do that would give you some type of information to create those those IEP goals. You could also have something coming from an outside agency, you know, like a, a, a psychiatric report or some type of neuropsycholo- neuropsychological report that might inform some areas where you could be working on that in school. Um, I actually would love to hear more of, you know, you're now in the public school setting and, and how does that look um, for public school students who don't have maybe as much of that at the ready? Right. And I'm, you know, in a I'm in an affluent community where a lot of families have access to mm-hmm. things like neuropsychs or independent evaluations. Um, and I, you know, I really think about or put myself into the shoes of those communities that don't have families with that type of access and under pretty typical circumstances. And I know at your school, part of your psychological testing is projectives. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Most public school testing is really just the cognitive. Yes. So you're really not getting that emotional component out of it. Now, they, of course, most schools do a BASC, uh, which is a social emotional scale, a Connors, which is an ADHD rating scale, you know, things like that. But teachers don't always fill them out. General mm-hmm. teachers, you don't always have accurate data. And so you're left with sort of a guessing game of how students are doing in school without, you know, a full 
comprehensive um, data tool, I guess. And what I'm seeing more and more of is kids are getting hospitalized outside the school setting. So they're still making academic progress. Um, and I'm seeing this a lot. And most of it is internal dysregulation. So we've had kids who are actively suicidal, mm-hmm. have a plan. Um, we don't, in my community, see, although I imagine other communities, they probably see some of the outward aggressive behavior um, or, you know, kids. Uh, but what we mostly see is sort of the refusal, the school refusal, as we've talked about a million times on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came you know, a few weeks ago, I was like, at what point do do schools really need to take a hand in these kids who are, you know, hospitalized, um, end up in CBATs or end up boarding at emergency rooms for um, suicidal ideation or a plan to commit suicide or an attempt? Mm-hmm. At what point do school, and it's a really hard question to answer. I don't know if I have the answer to it. In my mind, there's always the child find piece. So it's always like, we should absolutely, if this is happening, we should absolutely at least take a look at the kid to make sure that we're doing all that we can in our power. But that's just sort of where I sit is Mm -hmm. I'd rather do more for a kid than miss that completely. And then something more Mm -hmm. dramatic happens. Well, and I don't know that everybody always knows the right questions to ask or the right things to look for. And especially if you're talking about more underserved communities, do parents and guardians and, and educators in those settings know what to look for, how to advocate, what to ask for the school to be responsible to do. And I think, you know, when you have um, parents who are well-connected with each other, well-connected with their rights, um, their advocates, their lawyers, you know, they tend to have some more understanding of what's um, what they're able to ask for, what they're able to access. They can push for that in different ways. And I don't know that that's true for the majority of, of districts, especially if you're not in an affluent setting mm-hmm. or you're not someone who's had a child with so many um, concerning behaviors up to a certain point where you've had no choice but to understand and learn all these things because they've been hospitalized or they've been kicked out of programs and you understand what you need to be looking for. Um, and I think we've talked a lot about having accountability within um, the education system of who, you know, making sure people are identifying with a, with a child. You know, this child can be your, your kid that you relate to and you connect with. Um, and again, we always want to state that we don't want to put more burden on educators. It, it's pretty clear um, every single day that I do my job that the burden is immense and almost impossible to bear. But I think these are the pieces that um, we've seen a huge uh, shift with kids that just are really struggling to be students. And not all of them maybe can be reached through a social emotional goal or some type of you know behavioral goal in school. But if we could start thinking more about that versus just worrying about test scores and academics mm-hmm. and more about how do you address this more robustly, because if you're addressing it from you know 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. or whatever you're covering a lot of that ground you're getting parents more and guardians more involved in a conversation about how they're doing with school how is it in terms of their emotional health and well-being in school that can also translate to home and it just becomes more comprehensive yeah and i think you know i we've i've had this sort of conversation with the our school psychologists quite a bit recently of like how do we help support um, general educators and understanding the nuances of these, you know, changes in the community. And I, it's funny, we were, this is relevant, but sort of relevant, but not, um, 
It's like off off topic, but not it's relevant. Anyway, whatever. I'll stop talking. You know, like we're gonna that. maybe you can prove it by what you're about to yeah. say. <laughs> so I was part of a conversation about the DCAP, which is in public schools is a requirement in Massachusetts that it's a district um, accommodation plan. So it's for teachers to be able to access a list of accommodations in every subject area for assessments or for whatever that they can say like, oh, what can we do without a plan in place? So mm-hmm. that's, you know, extra time, access to certain a technology, preferential seating, whatever right. it is. Like There's a list is, of accommodations that anyone could use. Standard kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And one of the things that I brought up was, I don't know if our general educators really know because they haven't had to, what universal accommodations and our standardized testing Mm -hmm. for our Massachusetts standardized testing, I'm not sure they know that there's a whole list, pretty robust list of accommodations that any kid could get at any time. And maybe we just start there. Mm -hmm. Um, And as it, like I said, it's a little tangential, if that's the right word, but like, but it relates. It's It's how do you, how do you engage people in this education to support kids? Well, I always think of like, it's like tiers, sort of RTI, or I, I, it's, I use the term triage sometimes with people. I know it's not a medical situation, but looking at like, how do we start grouping things into like to be able to say let's provide those accommodations that's our first level of defense let's see if that helps um but also with the understanding that we know we may we might catch a few kids in that group and that oh those accommodations were helpful but now we've got to bump up another group to another level of intervention and be more thoughtful of how to approach that um but i like you know i think we talk a lot about accommodations and i think those are things that definitely aren't consistently being addressed in in my opinion in, in certain settings and I think mm-hmm. it's something we have to get back to and I know it's extremely challenging to in a busy classroom whether it's gen ed special ed to be thinking about everything everybody needs all the time but if you can put things in place universally within a classroom that don't require some sort of specialized input from someone then all your kids are accessing that um, and you can start to think about what you know where are kids falling through the cracks and what else do we need to be doing but it's just it's very much it's also the kids that aren't necessarily externally reacting to things too and i think those are the ones that we worry a lot about the ones that you're talking about with the suicidal ideations and they're keeping all of that anxiety and all of that depression and all of those worries inside and not acting out where you have to deal with that so it's you know how are we catching those kids and and helping with that as with their you know mental health one how are we educating people outside of special education in in these nuanced areas Mm -hmm. where you're trying these accommodations and they may seem like they're working because the student is still making academic progress but how do you how do you teach that? Like if a student's using the bathroom frequently, I don't mm-hmm. know, that's a silly example. Cause I'm sure no, you would notice that, but and in families too, because to your point, I, we all know what that evaluation flow chart looks like. We all know the list of, um, types of educational disabilities. We all know that educational disabilities are different than medical dis- Like we all know all of that stuff, but how do you help share that with others who are working with kids that may fly under the radar, um, and may, um, need that extra support that isn't outwardly visible on a day-to-day basis. Well, and, and maybe it's just a simple, not maybe this isn't as simple, I don't know, it, as bringing it up, as talking about it, as being in a child's IEP meeting and just kind of checking in and saying, has anybody seen anything that we should be thinking, you know, any behavior that's changed, anything we've noticed, 
they're withdrawing more. They're not sitting with other kids at lunch. They're writing a lot in their journal, in their notebook that they're not letting anybody look at. They're, you know, dressing differently, whatever it is. But maybe that's also just becoming part of the dialogue when you're having meetings that tend to be more academically driven, that somebody's speaking up and advocating for that aspect of it. Even if it's just, hey, they're, they're fine. They're looking. We're not seeing anything outwardly. Doesn't mean that there's not something going on, but we're seeing consistency in how they usually present. We're keeping an eye on things, but like just having the conversation and just speaking out loud about what's going on instead of only focusing on parts of things and, you know, only focusing on part of the kid's day and not, not every aspect. And I also think connecting with guardians or families mm-hmm. and just seeing, cause I feel like a lot of families are so protective and guarded with what's going on at home. Um, and so you may not even know that there's stuff going on or that, you know, the student is refusing to leave their room when they get home or, you know, there's a reason why they're refusing to go to school. And, you know, I think there's a deeper dive into the grieving process of families and how to grieve, um, that your student has challenges or has other needs that may not be quote typical, mm-hmm. uh, which is now such a, it's so ridiculous because everyone's so unique that yeah. it's such a silly thing to say. Neurodivergent. Um, but I do, I think those kids who are doing well, oftentimes we're not necessarily communicating with families as much. So we don't know what's going on outside of the school day. Um, and I do think that there aren't a lot of great parameters. So there's no, like I said, there's no catch all. There's no, like, if this happens then this mm-hmm. has to be mm-hmm. an emotional disability. Um, and so I have the, not to keep, but I have the IDEA, um, special ed, emotional disability guidance or like what the setup, what the, Oh my God, why am I missing the word? Why am I brain farting on this word? I have no idea. The disability category and the definition. Mm-hmm. There it is. Okay. That's close Thanks. enough. Um, so emotional disturbance means a condition exhibiting one or more of the following characteristics over a long period of time and to a marked degree that adversely affects a child's educational performance. A, an inability to learn that cannot be explained by intellectual, sensory, or health factors. B, an inability to build or maintain satisfactory interpersonal relationships with peers and teachers. Star that, X that, circle it. Like that one I think is missing all the time. C, inappropriate types of behavior or feelings under normal circumstances. General pervasive mood or unhappiness or depression. E, a tendency to develop physical symptoms or fears associated with personal or school problems. Um, it's interesting that this they added this under IDA, but emotional disturbance includes schizophrenia. The term does not apply to children who are socially maladjusted unless it is determined that they have an emotional disturbance under paragraph C4I of this section. That's, it's weird that they like labeled schizophrenia. But anyway, I do think that that second one, the interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. people forget about. They think about academic performance, grades. They're missing the, what's the kid doing in the lunchroom? Mm -hmm. How's the kid walking down the hallway? Yeah. Well, and then there's always the thought, too, that, you know, just if a child has or a student has emotional and behavioral challenges, do we have to put them on an IEP to address um, social emotional areas or can we find a way to be more creative in addressing that? In, in a, a perfect world? Well, if I ruled the world. If you ruled the world. If I ruled the world. The answer would be kids would be able to get that support within you a classroom setting. Yeah, yeah, you get what you need. Instead of jumping through hoops to qualify someone for something, in the meantime, more t- you know, in, in the meanwhile, more time is going by where well, they're not getting what they need. And that's what I, I when I talk with people about this, I 
that aren't spe- within the special ed world of the school, I say, I said, even if we refer this kid for special ed, you're talking about a consent going home to families, mm-hmm. them thinking it over and deciding whether or not they even want to sign it in that moment. Let's say they sign it and you get it back a month later. That's already 30 days gone. Then you have another 45 school days before that meeting is even held. So mm-hmm. what are we doing by that time, it's, I mean, I'm thinking now, if I refer a kid for special ed now, I'm probably not having a meeting about that student until at least March. Right, so you're chopping up a, three months of the school year, on wasting time. And um, what are we doing in the meantime? How right. do we help support these students in the meantime? And, and it's almost, what's interesting is that I almost see this, I don't hear anything. When a student is referred for special ed, I then don't hear anything about the behaviors or like the concerns. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, they don't magically disappear. So what, you know, what are you doing in the meantime while you're waiting for this? And, and, you know, there are kids who are found ineligible. And so what are we doing as a community? Um, And I've been saying, I've been like standing on a soapbox a little bit recently too, because I also think, just to go off on a tangent. Um, I also think it's really hard for kids to understand why they're getting tested and it's what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I, we have kids that are tested every year, you know, parents are raising concerns or referring a kid or, or a teacher. And so now you're, you have this kid who's like, there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with me. I'm found ineligible. So there must be something wrong that no one can find. And so where's that self-esteem? And now you're digging that emotional hole even deeper. So how do we- And not addressing it. And not, Exactly. And you're not actually addressing what the challenges are. So how do we help support those kids? Well, this is where I wish that I could rewrite all the rules, but I can't at the moment. But hmm. I, I think, again, we talked about some standard accommodations, some standard thoughts about every child. And you know, it seems like beating the dead horse, but I think it's- making sure you're identifying someone who knows that kid who understands when something's changed and can relate to them and can be their kind of voice if they can't be the voice for themselves that i I, you know it seems like that's a hard thing to ask but i also feel like we're doing this for them why won't we go that extra step to be aware of who these kids are individually and what they might need. We may not catch them all. I get that. It's like Pokemon. No, that's awful. (laughs) We may not. I don't, I don't assume that every single child who is struggling internally with mental health or emotional challenges is going to be scooped up by us and we're going to figure it all out, but we can do better. And we know that everything has been exacerbated. We know that kids are, even, I mean, we can see it. A lot of them are, are showing us everything they've got. And if they're acting out in defiance against a teacher or against a classroom group of kids or against support staff, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting to address it, what's happening to this kid? Now they're getting, you know, suspended, expelled, kicked out, put to another school. You know, we're going to refer you out somewhere. You, someone else can deal with you. And if we maybe went back in time and looked at what started all of this, was there any warning sign prior to all of the defiance or all of the acting out? I realize, you know, every school district's different in terms of what their threshold for behavior, but we're getting, you know, kids are getting referred out of public school because of their behaviors and they're putting, being put into more restrictive settings with kids who may not actually be the right group of kids for them to be around based on what their actual needs are. They got themselves out of where they were. They may not need to be where they currently are referred to. 
and now you're stuck and this kid's losing time. And even if they go somewhere like a school like mine and they get some of the, the skills and they work on some things, even if it's for 45 days, a couple months, whatever, they go back, what's changed for them? Districts want to figure it out. They, you know, school systems want to figure it out. But what happens when they've worked on some things, now they go back, what's changed within the system versus what's changed for that kid? Well, and there's a place for therapeutic settings for certain groups of kids, but Mm -hmm. you're right. I think there's no, you know, it's sort of like, here, let's either get them out because we can't handle them and there's no teaching in between. Right. So, and, and it comes with the good and bad because therapeutic schools are meant for a unique group of kids mm-hmm. who need that level of care. So when you're, and I talk about this a lot in my setting, when you think about these kids, you're thinking, yes, there's some, there's some benefit to therapeutic support, but there's a cost that always comes with it because no therapeutic school is perfect and no, more restrictive setting is perfect for these students. And so why can't we bring some of that therapeutic support as part of our natural environment? I I think colleges, um, at least colleges I've been sort of interacting with are doing a really great, better job, I shouldn't say a great job, are doing a better job of um, putting in more classes for undergraduate teachers Mm -hmm. um, around social emotional um, learning. Shout out to Mia. Curry College. Yeah, Curry Woo-hoo. College, um, doing a lot of work around that um, yeah. and teaching students about how to behavior manage because I don't think a lot of students, meaning that are going to become teachers or in the field of working with children, whether it's in you know psychology or social work or whatever, but learning how to understand behavior and how to manage that rather than not touch on it at all because I think that's a huge piece, Danielle, like going back to where they're learning how are we teaching and, and are we changing how we approach a classroom of students and, and a different philosophy about what, you know, the kids, the, how we're going to expect them to present, what we expect from them, how we address things so that we don't, you know, again, there's always going to be the, the kids that need more, that we will figure that out as their education journey starts. But there are going to be the kids that we probably could do more for in-house or within that their own classroom setting that makes it the least restrictive way to, to, you know, handle what's going on for them. And it's part of differentiated instruction. So mm-hmm. I know that that's like a buzzword that people are like, Bleh, when they hear it, but, um, it really is a piece of, dif- you know, you're not just differentiating the academic stuff to meet kids needs. You're also differentiating your class so that every kid feels like they belong in that mm-hmm. setting. And I feel like, you know, given the experience I've had and we've had in a therapeutic setting, getting all of that training in something like cognitive behavioral therapy mm. was well was not only a game changer for me and how I thought things through as a as an adult in the world. Um, it's also there are nice components of it that aren't um, time sucks. There are really little language changes that you can make. I always I never forget um, we did another training called solution focused mm-hmm, therapy, mm-hmm. which is such a simple, yeah. it's really not like a therapy. Like if we're going to throw it out there, solution I mean, focused thinking, th- solution focused thinking and something as simple as instead of saying, but saying, and mm-hmm. it really yeah, does make it. How you phrase things. And so it's mm-hmm. really not, 
you know, I think people get overwhelmed with like, well, we already have to take all of this on. So where are the simple mm -hmm. mechanisms that we can sort of incorporate into our day to day? And well, I do think a lot of CBT stuff and things like that, you can actually incorporate in your day to day. Absolutely. Well, we do that with social thinking for those out there who know about social thinking. We change, you know, think about me. And like we, we say things that at first when we say them, they sound super weird. At least they did for me to mm -hmm. say it. Like, think about me. But turns out that's a great way to connect with kids that have neurodivergent brains who are needing more concrete, you know, cues on what to do. This is also similar to that. Like, how can you get kids talking or get engagement from them by just rephrasing how you say things or how you're approaching a situation instead of coming in with more of a punitive approach or coming in with more understanding you're you're trying some collaborative problem solving you're trying to just reach them in different ways that maybe that elicits a dialogue that starts to help that child express what they need um, differently and again if it's if it's helping in any way for any kid it's worth doing and it's not a big ask um, but it does take some time a little bit some training some education finding the resources making sure that you know especially people that are administrative roles making sure that that you know those others that work for them are getting that training and understanding what's needed because you first have to recognize that you need to do this in order to figure mm -hmm. out how to implement it. Well, what's, what'll be interesting is, you know, I, we always say that uh, we're in a we're in a fairly progressive state mm -hmm. um, as it relates to education and special education. And so I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of work to be done. I think, incre you know, whatever, increasing MCAS by 20 points for kids is ridiculous, but, and I think- yeah. uh, Look at that. <laughs> I She's think, a quick learner, that one. <laughs> I think, you know, they just passed a, um, I don't know if it's a regulation or law. I, it just literally just passed and went into effect around suspensions. And part of that, your public schools are not, or no school in Massachusetts is allowed to suspend a kid without proving that they've tried other practices first. So they have to go through processes of like restorative practices, mm -hmm. collaborative problem solving, and they have to show that this student has, through all of these trials and tribulations, if they continue that behavior that warrants the suspension, they have to prove it first that they've tried other me mechanisms, which I actually, I'm interested to, to see how that plays out over the course of the next year in, in public school communities that have high suspension rates. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be interesting to see. Oh yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, I'm, there's a lot of work to be done. That's all. That's all yeah, I know. There and, always is. And this post-COVID world, it feels like there's a good opportunity to make some really big changes at the federal level. But we've talked enough about that in past episodes. So why don't we talk about a would you rather? Sounds good. Now, Raleigh, I have a really important question to ask you tonight. I know. Would you rather never brush your teeth? Mm. Or never brush your hair again, including no shaving. <laughs> um, oh, man. That's a really hard one. I, I have to say the hair. I have to. How do you not brush your teeth? I can't live like that. I'd have, I, so I can't shave my head is what you're saying. No, you can't shave. Oh, shave. Oh, no. No shaving your head. I get it now. Yeah, I thought you meant no shaving. That would have put me over the edge. Your face? No, my legs or anything. <laughs> I couldn't go with hair. Like, I don't know, whatever. Mine is never, I would, I would go with hair. 
Like I, I need to brush my teeth. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I brush my teeth at least. I, but many you're not times allowed to shave your head to prevent the need to brush the hair. So that's. Oh, not. are you allowed to cut it? Maybe. I, look, I don't know the rules. You, you're the one that threw brush that out. Brush your hair. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it says no shaving exclamation point. But you can maybe point. cut it really short. Maybe you can cut it really short, or maybe it's like you can only get a haircut every six months. Well, that know. would still be okay. You know We're really All right, I'm just going one. with. I have to brush my teeth. That's Fair. it. Agreed. Period. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening, um, Raleigh. I hope you feel better. Thank you. Thank you. You know, get that get that cold right out yeah, of there. Let's do it. That non-COVID cold. Yes, non-COVID. Uh, be sure to check us out. Uh, we have a New Year's resolution to be better about social media, mm-hmm. um, and so we are getting there, and we will do it. Um, be sure to follow us at Unstuck Podcast One, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and we um, hope you have a great year. We'll hopefully put another podcast out in a couple weeks. All right, uh, have a good one. Thank have, you. Have a great year. Have a great year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Okay. <laughs>